Jarring cacophony can only mean one thing. It's the return of the most ill-informed... No, no, we're well-informed, but uh, petty podcast from Scotland and the world ever. You're listening to the Power of Three podcast. I'm Kenny Smith, and I'm going to be guiding you through this wonderful myriad of digital versatile disc-type goodness, but upscaled to Blu-ray. And at my side are my trusty fellow suitor Johnny, also known as Tom Harris. Hello, Tom. Uh, you were right the first time. Um, ill-informed, not well-informed, ill-informed. Okay, we'll go for that. And also here, like uh, the other one, somebody else out of um, Tamashanter, it's David Steele. Hello, Kenny. Hello, Tom. Hello, everyone. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. As it's a Blu-ray special, I'm appearing today in 10080 pixels or whatever it's called. I mean, an absolute arsehole. It wasn't worth it, but it doesn't matter. Let's keep going. <laughs> As you said, Dave, we are the most still-informed podcast going. So there we go. For, list- for listeners at home, David is coming from a cupboard under the stairs. <laughs> to go with his new Almost. tattoo. Almost. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm turning into an absolute reprobate, and if you like. That's, that's my second new tattoo in a month after, like... No new tattoos since 2010, so that's fun, isn't it? Well, I was referring to the sound quality, to be fair, but yes. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what that's what I was worried about. I mean, it, does it sound worse than the other room that I'm normally in? Um, I'm, I'm... Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's fine. It's fine, isn't right. it? Yeah. We can go with it. We can work. Yeah, right. let's go with it. Let's go with it. Yeah, and uh, we'll be joined later on by a couple of guests who are going to tell us all about the making of some elements of season nine. So, woo, for Blu-ray, of course, not from the original stories. Tom, before we go into the individual stories, what's your general thoughts and how you remember season nine? Because you were there at the time when it was first broadcast. Yes, I am very old, and I remember them all being broadcast uh, back in the seventies, and. For me, well, actually, for everyone, everyone, this is peak who, and I will fight anyone who says otherwise. To me, this is, uh, you know, I was at the exact age, 1972, so I was was eight years old, uh, and that's the perfect age to be scared lifeless by Doctor Who, and I was. um, And for me, these, and I know, Every single episode we do, we overuse the word iconic. But when you look at these stories, you know, you look at the Day of the Daleks, uh, Curse of Pearl and the Sea Devil, the Time Monster, certainly those first three. I mean, there's, there's no way you can do that anything other than say that they're, they're iconic. And um, for me, that this is what defined Doctor Who for me, this actual season. Um, so, uh, um, yes, I, I, it's wonderful. I'll be looking for this box set for a very long time. Dave, how's your excitement level been for it? Yeah, I am. Well, I'm a big Johnsy fan, as everyone knows, and I was I was surprised that they they went with this one after doing season eight so recently. Um, I thought they might have gone for season eleven just for the sake of variety, as far as you know, supporting cast and all that. But I don't think it's um, a, you know, I agree with Tom completely. I don't think it's a coincidence that four of those stories from season nine were amongst the very first to be not to be novelised. You know, indeed. 
Day of the Daleks and Sea Devils were novelised very early on and the mutants and Curse of Peladon very soon after. It was a long time before the Time Monster was done, but that's that doesn't really matter. This is, you know, I think it's a slightly uneven story and we'll talk about some of that as we go further on, but I think it's certainly, in, in a lot of ways, this is the Barry and Terrence approach, sort of going full tilt, They're very confident. They know that they've got a winning formula after season eight, so they know they can mix that up. They know what works and what doesn't, and yeah, I think they're cracking. Where do you stand on it? Because you're not the biggest, you're not as big a Pet Wee fan as we are. No, I'm not. Um, I mean, I love. I mean, I, I mean, I really enjoyed the era, and I love Joe, who's one of my favourite classic companions. But for me, season nine, first three episode, for our first three stories, really enjoy them, and then it just plummets off a cliff into absolute tedium for me. I think they're probably the mutants and the time monster are two of my least watched. Doctor Who stories of all time ever. I've seen Underworld more than that pair, which says something. And Underworld is not one of my favourites. Um, but generally, it's, as you say, it's to use Tom's I word, um, Day was very popular after it uh, brought the Daleks back. Curse of Peladon, of course, given the new lease of life with the 80s repeats. And how can you not love Sea Devils? So, yeah, there's. It's a good, uh, weird, good weirdly enough, I mean, I, I remember every single, at least something, you know, from the original broadcast of every single John Pertwee story, all the way from Spare to, from Space uh, up to Planet the Spiders, except the mutants. And I don't know what it is. You know, I I, I think I could have been holding for all six weeks of this broadcast. I just, there is not, I watched it again, obviously more recently. There isn't a single scene or line of dialogue or special effect, nothing that rings a bell. And it's the weirdest thing because every single other story from that era, I I remember at least some of it, if not all of it. And it's I don't know why. And I must have watched it. I just don't remember doing it. And then when I did finally watch it, I agree with you, Kenny. I did wonder, well, why not did I bother watching that? <laughs> okay. It's an interesting thing about um, the mutants and time monster because Barry Letts often talked about how he would do six parters because it would minimise the number of first nights that they'd have. And I think both of those stories, I don't think they're they're quite as bad as some people think. There's enough good stuff in them. Both of them would have been an excellent four-parter, or at least a better four-parter. So it's possible, you know, if they'd maybe hived off a couple of episodes of each of them, either had a shorter season or maybe come up with the idea for another come up with the idea for another four-parter. They might be a little more well regarded, don't know. But we can talk further on those stories when we get to them. Yeah. So why don't we start with Day of the Daleks? It's one of those first stories that was released in VHS. So there's a lot of people sort of got a nostalgia for it, even if they weren't there at the time, people like myself and Dave. I got it for my 15th birthday. Um, I remember I was going up to Glasgow to get that and Robots of Death and Spearhead from Space, trailing my entire family around every shop till we got all three. So we got two of them in Virgin and Union Street and then Spearhead and WH Smith's on Argyle Street. There we go. Spectrum we Brain. Go. Tom was looking at me with disgust. <laughs> no, because um, around about the same time, I was buying Spearhead from Space and Day of the Daleks on VHS as soon as it came out. Uh, and I actually gave away my copy of Day of the Daleks to a friend. Uh, I know, and I don't know why. Um, but yeah, yeah, I remember buying them on VH. I don't have any of my VHSs left. I've still I got most. I think I've still got mine. Uh, I got my copy at the Glasgow Garden Festival in the BBC shop. Fantastic. There we go. It couldn't be more 1988 if it tried. Exactly. <laughs> now, what do we think of it? 
Dave, are you a fan of this one or is it somewhere in the middle? Oh, I love this one. I think unconditional. I mean, it's a nine out of 10 for me in this one. There's a few sort of untidy scripting moments here and there um, as far as the, the when events actually took place and stuff. But I love it. It's a story I get real fondness for because it's one of the first novelizations that I bought with my own money. Um, and it's, you know, it's the Daleks coming back after a very long period, you know, without them. Um, last time they appeared was, what, the start of season five? Is that right? End of season four? I can't remember. Four, yeah, end of season um, four. Yeah. And so this is obviously, it's a, it's a massive long gap. And it's, I think it's significant because this is still obviously during the period of the Doctor's exile. And it's unit versus the Daleks. It's the only time that happens. It's the only time really in John Zay's period when unit, who are such a, you know, big element of all of his story, well, most of his stories, come up against one of the Doctor's recurring, you know, enemies. Obviously, they'd, they'd appeared in the Sideman story with Troughton, but this is the first time, the only time really in that period when something happens. And the stuff in episode four when unit soldiers are fighting Daleks and ones is tremendous. Um, I really like it. I think that John is really comfortable by this point. I think the Doctor has started to relax into his exile a little bit and enjoy it a little more. Um, you know, that's the justification for the wine and cheese element, I think. He's just, you know what, as I think when we talked about season eight, I sort of talked about the the Doctor as a political prisoner. So he's he's very much like the master in the Sea Devils. The Doctor's kind of, right, I'm stuck here. I'm just going to enjoy it. Um, he has the rapport with Katie Manning. The unit guys know what they're doing. It's a really interesting, it's one of the first sort of proper timey-wimey stories in Doctor Who. I really like it a lot. I would agree with all of that. Um, I love Day of the Daleks. And it was, you know, years and years later, uh, I remember reading reports about how fans didn't like it because the, there was only three Daleks included and it looked all a bit cheap. And I, I pay no heed because, it, first of all, it's a brilliant ghost story, which is how I approached it when I was eight years old. I was scared absolutely witless uh, by by the, the you know the first episode is is full of just ghosts and you're waiting for the whole time for a Dalek to appear doesn't appear until the end of the very first episode and when it does appear and I'll never forget that time when it when it materialized out of the ether in, in a sewer uh, towards the end of the first episode and I remember the just huge excitement I had watching this and it didn't let up for me for the rest of that story I think I mean Aubrey Woods is the controller is just fantastic. To me, he's one of the the, the the standout performances of any character in the Pertwee era because I, I just couldn't get him out of my head for years and years after I saw it. To, to me, he was like a James Bond baddie. Really, really cool. A bit suspect in his motives. Ultimately redeems himself, which James Bond baddies tend not. But he, he just stuck out as one of the best characters that wasn't the Doctor, um, and I, I, I love it. I still love it. I, I think it is a, a masterpiece. See, I'm, I like it, but I don't love it. If that makes sense, I think because yeah, I've got Death to the Daleks before it, and Death was, you know, was just like my first sort of Dalek story that I bought that I could watch over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. I just, I don't know if it's because I got Death first that that's sort of like my preferred. Dalek Pertwee story of choice. I think the fact that it's um, it's got that. So you saw death. You saw death before you even saw planet. Yeah, because I got the VHS. Ah, right, right. And uh, planet video didn't come out till what ninety five, ninety six, might even been later than that. Yeah, 
panic repeat in '93, which which helped, I think. Yep. But um, yeah. Remember those days when episode three was only in black and white? Right. Yeah. I still find it odd watching that. But anyway, that's by the by. Um, so I like it, and I do particularly like one of the space ladies that works for Aubrey Woods. She's got really nice makeup <laughs> and she's got a nice face. So. I quite like the I quite like the um the radio control lassie in unit headquarters if we're picking out favourite female support artists. She's my favourite. Mm. <laughs> Who's your favourite, Tom? Um I, I well I wouldn't descend to your level, David. I <laughs> I have ultimate respect for all of the the men and women uh, in the cast. So I'm not going to look at lower myself. I just think you know there there are I mean there are some silly set pieces in this. Of course, the 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 desperation. I've I've mentioned to David before actually about my suspicion that whoever designed this 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 uh, adventure was a big fan of Diamonds of Forever which had been released a year before uh, for a start there's, there's the same chase with the three wheeled I can't remember what you call them those little vehicles with the massive thick wheels which Sean Connery yeah. and, and Jill St. John used to escape well John Connery used to escape from from uh, the, the Spectre base in the in, in the desert and then John Pertwee and, and, and Joe use it to, to kind of not escape from the Ogrons <laughs> to, to, to make a very very walking pace uh, flee from, from the pursuit of the Ogrons and there was a, there was another oh yes the, the other uh, thing from Living uh, Happens forever wasn't actually in this episode, Doctor. It was the uh, it was the Humobile from Planet of the Spiders, which looks incredibly like Blofeld's uh, snazzy, futuristic underwater submarine that he uses to escape from the other rig at the end. The Bathos sub. Yeah, the Bathos sub. So um, yeah, yeah. So apart from the, the the silliness, I mean, I was really intrigued by the story. I, I thought it was a fantastic idea to bring in the Dalek invasion of Earth. But to you know, to invent an alternate times timeline, if you like, and and to and I love this idea about you know butterfly wings, that you know you, you do something in the present that has massive unintended consequences in the future, although obviously in this one the the consequences are entirely intended uh, by the Daleks, but I just I, I was fascinated by that idea, and they'd never really done that Doctor Who before. Can I say something about the novelization? Sure, absolutely. Because the, the Day of the Daleks was one of the first of the novelizations, and it still had the uh, you know the the block letter Doctor Who on the cover, not the curved Doctor Who, which which was used for the reprints. This is the first six issues. The first six um, titles just had the plain black Doctor Who written straight. Are you with me? You know what I'm talking about. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yep. Um, and yep. I came slightly late to collections, and I was really uh, disappointed that it was already out of print at the time I started collecting. And I desperately wanted to get hold of it. And then they announced Target announced that uh, they were going to reprint Day of the Daleks uh, at the same time, I think, as Claws of Axos and the Dalek Invasion of Earth. So they brought out Day of the Daleks, and I was really disappointed. They'd taken away all the illustrations from the inside, and they'd replaced the, fo the masthead font. They'd updated it so that it wasn't the original block uh, capitals. Yeah. And it wasn't until another few years that I went to a science fiction convention and managed to get a copy of the original, which made me incredibly happy, and I still have that one. Oh, yeah, one of the my copy of the novelization is one is one of the few that I've got left from when I was a kid. I mean, I think I must have traded and swapped a lot of them as I went through you know, the early eighties. 
but um, my copy still has David Steele, Freesby Avenue, whatever age I was, and yeah. terrible spidey writing and, and pencil on the, the inside front cover. And my, my copy has the the sort of the edited diamond logo with the, the curved thing at the top, yeah. Yeah. Nice. One thing I was going to say about the, the novelisation, that Tom's just reminded me, was when I watched the TV version for the first time, there was quite a few moments in the book that were missing. Like, in the book, Joe's built a dummy for the doctor to test the gun on, and there's a line when Katie talks about how delicious or fabulous the meal was. In the book, Terence gives her a thought where she thinks that it had been tasteless and wasn't very nice, but she's trying to keep in the controller's good side. Lots of little shaded moments that, that I was sort of surprised not to see them in the, well, the TV that, version. That, that was what was wonderful about the novelizations. And before Terence started churning them out just by taking the script and put, writing the script onto paper and doing them as quickly as he could, and, and I always felt shortchanged with those ones. His earlier ones, like uh, his you know the autumn invasion and day of the daleks were really substantial proper novels with mm. a lot of extra stuff in it and although mm. it wasn't a turn sticks one but the the novelization of the cave monsters by malcolm hulk had some brilliant lines in it that didn't find their way into into the original uh, television series worth revisiting i think absolutely yeah absolutely one final thought on david alex before we move on I think that Joe looks her best in this outfit, in this story. I think she looks absolutely amazing. So, oh, she's so beautiful. She does. <laughs> so, you've been mentioning things about novelizations there. Um, and we'll move on to the Curse of Peladon now. The thing that I remember about the novelization is that everybody's favourite hermaphrodite hexapod, Alpha Centauri, changes colour and goes from green to purple in moments of stress. That's right. Yeah. Gosh, the which I've not noticed. They brought Alpha back, they could do that now, couldn't they? That'd be interesting. Easy. So, let's have your thoughts, Tom. Curse of Peladon, is it one that you like? It is one I like. I mean, I remember at the time, you were all familiar with that feeling of slight embarrassment when you're watching something with your parents and they know that you love it and you know that they don't particularly have any views about it and you want it to be really good and you want your parents to love it as much as you do but then something comes on screen that's a bit embarrassing and you know it's embarrassing and you don't want to admit it Uh, and just watching it and of course in the 70s you had no option but to watch television programs in the company of the rest of your family because there was only one television in the house um, and I remember having that feeling watching this because I was a bit embarrassed by Alpha Centauri I I thought he she it was a bit embarrassing it was just so obviously a BBC props invention it, you know you couldn't convince yourself that by any stretch of the imagination this genuinely was an alien it looked it looked to me even at the time like a monster they had developed from the winning entry of a Blue Peter competition. <laughs> and I, I, I never could take it seriously. And actually, I think I enjoyed the novelization more than I enjoyed the television series, although I did enjoy the television series. And it was spooky in parts, and I, and I thought it was a, a great romp. But when you're reading the novelization, you can invent your own special effects. Um, and you're and you're right, David. They should bring Alpha Story back. Of course, they did bring bring it back for the end of uh, Queen of Mars, uh, very briefly. Um, but but yeah, so that was my kind of overriding memory from 1972 on that one. Love it because I remember um, 
Grinwood Town Stakes Up uh, for a fan event in summer of 92 and picking up and having lunch with him. And uh, we're chatting about various stories and and just asking, you know, talking about you know various monsters and things. And Alfred Centauri and just described it as a cock in a cape. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Summing it up perfectly. And no, I really enjoyed this one. I was a um, big fan of it when it was repeated back in the eighties. Um, just sort of getting to see so many different aliens, and of course, ice warriors. Because I absolutely love Ice Warriors. I think because of this, this is one of their, that's why they're one of my favourite monsters, even now. Um, and the fact that we've actually got noble, nice warriors, if you prefer. And uh, and very clever performance from Alan Denian, who's very different uh, from his performance as Slar. I think, great story. And it's, mm. you know, very, we'll come back to the politics in a wee second of it, Tom, as I'm sure you may have an opinion in that. Dave, yeah. how did you enjoy it? Yeah. Well, like yourself, Ken, the first time I saw it was the, the Doctor Who and the Monsters repeat in the summer of 82. Um, I remember seeing one episode at home in colour and one episode on holiday in the black and white portable we had in the caravan. <laughs> um, kids today, yeah, they don't know how lucky they are. I like it a lot. I think I probably like it as much as Day of the Daleks. It's a really good story for John, really good story for Katie. It's the story where Katie actually gets the chance to properly do some acting. She gets some proper you know, storylines to herself rather than just sort of reacting or getting captured and escaping like she does for, you know, most of her first few stories. The romance with King Peladon is very interesting and you almost believe for a split second that she might stay behind. Um, I like it a lot. I think being a four-parter, it's nice and concise. Doesn't outstay its welcome. The film sequences with the fight are amazing. John looks phenomenal. It's a great combination of waistcoat, shirt and jacket. He looks, I think, Day of the Daleks and Curse of Peladon are the two best looks Johnsy ever had. Um, he looks dope. If people still say that. I like it, yeah. I like it a lot. I'm sure I read the novelisation. I'm sure I did. Um, I must have done because I recognise what you said about the colours changing. I'm not sure if I read the, the novelisation of Monster Peladon though. But I like it a lot. I think it's um it's it's nice to kind of get the Doctor and Joe away from Earth for a change. Um, you know, I think it's only about the second time that they've done that since the Pert We Era began. So um yeah, it's a good one. And you know, I'll agree with everything you said about having the Ice Warriors back and Alan Benion is tremendous. It's um it's a lot of fun. I like it a lot. Tom, as a former politician, what's <laughs> your take on the whole Peladon European analogy? Well, I mean it's as subtle as a brick, isn't it? And uh, I think it's, and you know, let, let me, I won't go into Nigel Farage rant mode, but there is a, an, you know, an element of condescension here. I mean, the story is basically this silly backward planet that could benefit immensely from being incorporated into an, uh, an interplanetary federation if only the natives wouldn't be so stupid about worrying about sovereignty. And... <laughs> Uh, and that was that. That was the BBC view at the time, and I have to tell you, probably is still the BBC view as far as the EU is concerned. Um, and I suppose in that respect, they captured the zeitgeist because there was overwhelming support for Britain going into the EU at the time, or the EEC as it was. Um, so you know they were they were pushing in the same direction as as most of the public but there's no doubt this is you know very politically laden uh, the the political message in it is as subtle as a prick it is almost as subtle as the sequel to this the monster of peladon 
uh, a couple of years later when they decided that uh, the minor strikes required the interpretation of Doctor Who writers because Monster Peldon is basically all about the minor strike with the Badger men going on strike yeah. um, and, and once again the BBC took sides in a quite a intense domestic political conflict uh, which was brave of them Good job Gary Lineker wasn't around then Hashtag topical <laughs> for 1973. <laughs> Thanks for that, Tom. But Dave, Tom, before we move on, I think we should invite our first guest on to join us. Let's hear from Peter Crocker, who's going to tell us all about the restoration of this series. And there's some fascinating Ooh. stuff coming up here about how they made it. Yes, hello, I'm Peter Crocker, and I do the picture restoration on the Doctor Who Blu-ray range. Welcome back, Peter. It's always a joy to hear from you because, as you know, I love to hear all these technical details. Maybe not super mega tech specs, but I love hearing how it all comes together. And I know a lot of other people do as well. So I suppose um, when you get uh, commissions to do these, obviously in this case, we're talking season nine. What was your first reaction when you were told that was next? Um, Abject terror really because uh, I knew that that was always going to be one of the hardest seasons to do from the point of view of just sheer workload from my uh, from my perspective there are, there are some seasons which are easy for me for example think you know the Sylvester McCoy ones are generally comparatively easy for me because it's mostly just painting out dropouts of which there are plenty because one inch tape is very uh, very prone to that especially when it's getting on for 40 years old but um you know it doesn't present usually that much difficulty um on the other hand mark with the sound um really has his work cut out with the swiss mccoys because you know there's the possibility of surround sound mixes on pretty much all of them and mark's also very keen on uh, cutting uh, uh, special editions um, uh, and because of his involvement in the series at the time he's very keen to take the lead on that which is absolutely fine so the workload for him on those later seasons tends to be very very heavy compared with me but, but with season 9 it's pretty much the reverse um, that said I mean that said you know uh, um, you know, Mark does a lot of amazing work and the sound on season 9 is just unbelievably good compared with what's on the original tapes and what went out at the time and of course he has managed to do a, a Dolby Atmos uh, surround mix on the Sea Devils as well which is stunning but f- from the picture point of view season 9 in 14 of the episodes only exist as mixtures of black and white film recordings and reverse standards converted American tapes which are multi-generation so very noisy and the reverse standards conversion process introduces even more noise into those um, already very grainy, noisy pictures. Um, so those those 40 episodes, uh, they all take about three times as much work for me as a standard episode would because I've got to restore the black and white film print uh, as if it was a black and white episode. So. Clear, uh, clean it up, stabilise it, uh, vidfire uh, to re- bring back the video look where it's appropriate, um, and grade it. Um, but then on top, I've got to get, I've got to take the uh, the colour tape from America and clean that up as well, remove as much of the noise as possible. And then when I've done that, 
I've got to combine it with the black and white film recording, overlay it on top. Um, and that's when you find, for example, you find bits that are missing on the American tape that are there on the film recording. And sometimes things that are on the American tape, but not on the, but cut out of the film recording. Doesn't happen quite so often that, fortunately. I don't, I don't think that happened at all in season nine. That was a um, kid in season eight and seven. But um, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a massive amount of work. And it's quite high stakes work as well, because you have got to try and make the end result subjectively look better, be, a, be an easier watch, a more pleasant watch than what we had before. Um, and, there's, and it's such a complex process that if any if any part of that process falls down or doesn't work very well, um, there's always the possibility that someone might very reasonably say, well, that's very nice, but actually the DVD looked better, <laughs> which, which is something that um, is always a concern before we're starting. Once you once once we're actually uh, sort of working on things, very it's very soon, but it's very quick to work out where the problems, if any, are going to be. And there were some on season nine, but um, fortunately, none of them were insurmountable. So, in the end, I think that I do think they all look better than the DVD. Yeah, I would imagine that um, you starting off, we we'll go through them story by story. That day would have been fairly straightforward, given that, that, that was incredibly straightforward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that was. I mean, it, it's a shame in a way because. Um, as, as with all these things, it, it, it's always very nice um, to get, to be able to go back to square one and start start from scratch with something, because um, it, it can always be things can always be improved. But in a in a way, Day of the Daleks is the um, is the bridesmaid of this season because it, um, because it all exists on the original tapes, and therefore the the DVD master is pretty decent that you know, we use that as a starting point uh, because all the, you know, the rest of the the time and budget which amounts to the same thing really um, had to go on the the more challenging episodes so uh, so yeah I mean, it's, I mean it's surprising how many extra dropouts that we picked up on uh, on going back and doing it again and and also film dirt and extra bits of stabilization but for the most part um, the day of the, uh, day of the daleks was was pretty straightforward so quite enjoyable to do in that sense nice quick one to to take off yeah but i suppose then when it came to curse of peladon when obviously i'm of a generation who remembers those repeats and the, mm. the five to five to six to five uh, conversions so was that again back to Basically, starting from scratch with these ones. Yes, we yes we started that one from scratch. Um, I remember when we did the DVD, being generally quite happy with how that looked. Actually, it, it, it was one of the better reverse standards conversions. But even then, um, the, when you actually see what the film recording is like and the amount of extra detail that's in the picture there, it's not quite night and day. That would be going too far. But it's a it's a very significant quality improvement over over the DVD and there's more consistency there. We, we, we did have a bit of discussion with episodes one and two because the, the um, on the DVD we corrected some aspect ratio errors that were there on the original broadcast on one of the cameras. Basically one of the cameras in the studio was set up incorrectly which meant that everybody looked 
you know, it's, it's the opposite of the Dickinson's or, you know, or Curry, Curry where, uh, Curry's window showing four or three programmes on a widescreen telly where everyone's stretched out. It was the opposite with it to that, with this, this camera, where everyone, where the picture was sort of squeezed in and everybody looked, you know, too thin. And for the DVD, we corrected that, so everyone looked looked okay. But what that did mean is that you, you're missing about um, 20% on each side of the picture that that would have been seen. So the, you, uh, originally, you see more of the set on on either side of the people that are in view. And you know, um, I, I did discuss with the bosses what we should do for the Blu-ray, whether we should actually uh, go back and have it as originally transmitted with the incor- uh, uh, the incorrect uh, picture on a cake on on certain shots or keep it as or keep it corrected when I say corrected keep, keep it stretched out um, with some picture cropping as for the DVD and uh, and we decided in the end that for consistency and also just to make it look look right would would keep the correction in from the dvd i did wonder whether we might be able to do it as a with branching almost like alternative effects so uh, anyone who desperately wanted to see it as it was on the original broadcast would and, and on the master tapes for that matter and film recording could, you could see it as that but um, the, there wasn't again all of these things cost in the authoring and the, the, it, it wasn't feasible to to do that so, so I'm afraid that that's one that's probably not going to please any, anyone who um, is very, very tightly wedded to the idea that we should be presenting things absolutely as originally broadcast. But I'm sure, uh, again, at, at least I've, I've got no doubt that if Barry Letts and Terrence Sticks and, for that matter, Lenny, Lenny Main were around now to comment on it, they would they would probably be aghast that we would even think about not correcting it given that we can (laughs) yeah it's funny I know exactly the shots you're talking about I remember them Um, just one of those ones that stick in the mind when you're watching and and then I did notice when the DVD came out oh maybe I imagined those just that's what you get when you watch these things too often yeah lots of the the shots in the throne room um, was was um, was affected by it, and it was just it was it, it was just one camera out of three or four that were there. But it was when whenever that camera was on in those in that studio session, um, it, it was uh, it, it was wrong, and it was probably something that was noted noted at the time. But they probably it probably you know um, would have required the the entire studio day you know studio session to be cancelled and remounted and they you know they probably thought not unreasonably at the time well most you know, chances are it's not going to be repeated people will only watch it once it's only one camera yeah we'll, we'll just live with it because yeah. it would be too expensive to try and fix it now yeah. we'll, we'll fans sure would never notice these video. things don't no, no, the well, I, I, I don't. I don't actually. I'm, I'm, I might be wrong, but I don't think anyone actually noticed it on the DVD. I think. Pe- I think people just assumed that 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 it was the previous tapes that were wrong, and the DVD was right how it should be, which I suppose it is. But but there is there is a significant amount of picture cropped off that that was seen originally in order to make the uh, make people the right shape. Uh, but I think I think it looks decent now. Yeah. Now, let's have a wee chat about uh, one you mentioned earlier that uh, had the big big screen showing of the Sea Devils. I would imagine that this was 
was this one of the biggest challenges of the set? Uh, in some respects, it was. I mean, uh, episodes four, five, and six is a bit like Day of the Daleks in the sense that it made you know, it made sense to use the DVD masters as the starting point because they come from the original tapes. Uh, and again, there's because we, um, people are watching on bigger screens now, and and particularly screens that are very unforgiving of noisy pictures. It's um, we have to be a little bit more careful in terms of. Noise reduction, try you know, um, and keep, keep uh, keeping. Um, it, it's about it's about making it look to your eyes now how your memory tells you it looked years ago. Uh, because if if we were to show just the raw tapes as they are straight out of the BBC archive on the sort of TV sets that people have at home now, um, they would look at just unbelievably awful so, so there's a lot, a lot of awful dust is sort of sprinkled on them to uh, to try and make them uh, make, make it look decent uh, but four five and six it, it's made mainly dropout removal and uh, a bit of film stabilization um, whereas episodes one two and three were back to the problem of um, combining American tapes with the film recordings and for the sea devils the American conversions are really quite poor they're they're more in the ballpark of colony in space from season eight where um, they're nice to have in color but they're really a, a fairly ugly watch so um, again we combined the film black and white film recording with the with the color and i think most people um will find it a much nicer watch certainly it seemed to go down quite well when it was shown at the BFI uh, uh, last weekend. And, yeah, well, were there any specific challenges with the scene? Yeah, the, well, the, yeah. Um, one of the problems you always have with these is the film recordings, um, they're sometimes not as stable as you would like. There's quite a lot of jitter on them. And one of the episodes, I can't remember which one now, but one of the episodes of the Sea Devils was quite jittery. Um, Luckily, because we've got the because of the American tapes, um, we can use um, the signal or the picture from the American conversion as a reference to cancel out the uh, the instability on the film recording. So uh, you, you can't do that with black and white. It's like a Hardwell Trouton because there's, there's nothing to compare it with. So you just got to try and smooth it out as best you can by comparing one one frame with the next but uh, with something like the sea devils it's, it's nice to be able to use the the color as a reference to lock and make sure that the the film recording is nice and stable um but the, but there was also um uh, episode two i think it was is that episode two yes i'm fair well if, if if it's not i apologize but i think it's episode two there was um uh, quite a, a a uh, bad scratch all the way through uh, about sort of two thirds uh, um, a third no a third of the way across the picture um, which sort of had, I had to try and get rid of as much as possible and ho hopefully I've made it invisible and, and hopefully by mentioning it people won't go looking for it because if they're looking for it there might be places where they can actually see it occasionally um, sort of rearing its ugly head if I haven't completely got rid of it but that's always a challenge doing that and one of the other one of the other issues actually with combining the color tape with the black and white film recording 
is that the as a, as a general rule a film recording has less picture at the top and bottom so because of the te- uh, the complexities and technicalities and how the film recordings were made um, a, a little bit of the top and bottom of the picture is lost it's usually it's usually about between six and ten lines picture lines at the t- at the top and bottom but it's not always symmetrical so it might be sometimes you might you might lose 14 lines at the top and six at the bottom um, rather than you know ten and ten say um, which, which is a shame because you're losing picture but at the same time when the tapes com- standards converged were made in the 1970s uh, the original standards converted to make the American tapes uh, chopped a bit off the edge of the of, of the ta- of the picture on the tape which means that when we come to put the colour back on there isn't any colour there on the on the edges of the film recording so we have to have to use sort of other other methods to make sure that you don't have a black and white stripe down the left and right side on the uh, on the Blu-rays, but because uh, I have seen people say, "Oh, there's the, you know the, the film recordings are zoomed in, so there's 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 less picture on the film recording than the tape," and actually that's that's a bit oversimplistic. There's more picture on the tape at the top and the bottom, but there's actually more picture on the film recording on the black and white film recording on the left and the right. Uh, that makes sense. But, but it's all in colour now anyway, because we don't, we don't allow black and white stripes down the side, don't like that. <laughs> no, too distracting. I know it's marvellous, yeah. and the, all the reviews and never, my friends who were at it said it's a tremendous restoration, so thank you for that. I look forward to seeing it. Oh, thank you. That's nice to, that's, that, that, that's nice to hear. You know, they're never going to look as sharp as the original tapes. It's impossible. There's no way they can because they've just been through too many um, sort of pixel mangling processes. You know, to go onto film and back and have combinations done. But but they're certainly they're certainly reasonably in the ballpark there. And uh, and it, and actually, what's good about the Sea Devils is you've got it starts with the low slightly lower quality episode so you hit episode one and if you remember in your you know or, or even if you've watched it recently what the dvd looked like you're immediately going to think oh my god this this looks so much better um, and then episodes two and three similarly you know it's more of the same and then when you hit episode four and you get onto the original uh, pal tape all of a sudden, it's it, it, you know you're into a different level again. It's wow, you know this is great. Oh, it's, only, I, it's, a, it's frustrating when you realise when when you actually if you take a step back and think, well, that's how the shadows look like. Wow, but, but we are where we are. Yeah, I cannot wait to see it. Oh, my juices are flowing with excitement, um, <laughs> which is great. Now, what about the mutants? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that, well that's that's really. Uh, pretty much cut and paste from the Sea Devils, really, because again, it's the first two episodes that are affected by the by not being on their original tapes. Episodes three to six are on the original PAL tapes and look lovely, but, but, but done a little bit more uh, more clean up on the spaceship scene in I think the end of episode three and beginning of episode four, I think, where. The marshal gets ejected into space, and the the um, uh, there was some quite nasty um, horizontal lines and 
uh, sort of almost like interference, um, which is I think is caused by just a, a problem on the vision mixer where they were doing the CSO for it. Um, so I've tamed that a little bit. It's one of those things where it's un unless you're on a Pixar budget of, or you've got dozens of people, you know, working at it, uh, it's, it's not basically it's not feasible to fix completely on our timescales and budgets. But uh, I've done a fair bit extra on that. Uh, over and above what we were able to do for the for the DVD, so it's not quite as distracting as it used to be, and it's and it's still fairly rubbish. Well, no, it's that that's that's very unfair. I think it's actually a very good CSO for, for when it was done, you know, um, beginning of 1972. But it's it, you know it, it's not it, watching in 2023. It's not the uh, it's not the greatest effect, but I think it's been tamed quite a bit. And now episodes one and two, I, again, I, th I think they they look pretty good. It, it, they wouldn't look quite so good if they were peppered between the existing pal episodes. But because you're starting the story with them and you haven't quite got that sort of frame of reference in your mind, it, it, it looks it looks pretty good to start with. And and again, when you hit episode three, all of a sudden it's, uh, it's, uh, it's wow, this is, again, this is so much better. But um, it's one of those stories which I think has always been a little bit unfairly criticised, largely because people have never or hardly ever been able to watch it in particularly good quality you know and now it's hopefully it's got a bit of a leg up at the start and I think there's a lot to like it I think the monsters are very good so I think it's a very interesting story it's not you know it's it's not badly uh, not badly made yeah I think there's a lot to like and I hope people do cool you could maybe tell us a wee bit about the time monster yeah I mean, the Time Monster is probably the one that I was most wary of for the Blu-rays, simply because I thought that the DVD wasn't too bad. The rear standards conversion, while it was a little bit soft, it tended to suffer a little bit less from horizontal flickering lines, which are very distracting, than some of the other season nine stories. So I knew that it had to be really well done in order to be consistently better than the DVD. and. I think one of the problems with it is the two of the two of the uh, film recording episodes were not really the best film recordings. In fact, in fact, in fact three of them um, had had issues. One of them, I can't remember which now. I think it might have been episode four, three or four. I think had um, really quite a, a nasty scratch throughout the episode, and if you can't get rid of the scratch invisibly you're never really going to be able to sell it as being from tape so that was um, that was that was difficult even with the new uh, newer scratch removal tools that we have uh, which, which just get better you know every year they just get better and better and particularly now the uh, the sort of ai assisted which you know, it, it sounds great, but it's, it's just it's just the you know the, the number crunching and mathematical capability, you know possibilities for looking looking around and seeing what sort of pixels are needed to to fill in the gap where the scratch is, and also for detecting what's a scratch and what's what's actually part of the picture that should be left behind. That's get that just gets better all the time. But even allowing for that, the uh, the you know the scratch on the Time Monster episode was. Uh, was concerning, but um, it's, it falls. I think it falls into the category of if, if you allow yourself to look for it uh, and, and see it, um, then you probably will see it 
from time to time but at least but it, but it shouldn't be uh, sort of ramming ramming itself down down your eyes all the time which it would be if it hadn't been removed because <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty nasty one and one of the one of the other episodes the uh, the undistortion that Richard Russell, Russell does was um, suboptimal for some of the episodes simply because um, looking at it at the end it was clear that the um, the film recording is actually made from two different film recordings that have been cut together. So the be- beginning of the episode and the end of the episode is from film recording, and then the bulk of it in the middle is another one that's been spliced in. So there's always been some damage at some point, but because they're different film recordings from different film re- film recorders, the the geometry is entirely different. So I had to I had to do a sort of manual correction of. Um, of, of the geometry on it, rather, rather than the automated one, uh, where where that was affected. But um, I think I, I don't think that's going to be particularly noticeable. It's it, you know it's, it's not that it's not the best film recording anyway. I think it's probably a duplicate, uh, which means it's lower quality. Although again, arguably better than the reverse tenderness conversion. It's it's always um, it's a bit of a thing. How to how to how to put it. Watching a reverse standard converted tape, you have the uh, the original uh, motion rendition quite nicely presented, but the uh, but the actual the actual picture quality is very ragged and very noisy. So the spatial resolution is is is, is very poor, but the temporal resolution is very high. And using a, with a film recording where you have the original pictures blended together you get double imaging and and a a certain blurriness which is burned into the image so the spatial resolution might be a little bit better particularly on static images you don't have the the flickering but uh, you've just got sort of blurred movements and it's it's, you know some people prefer one or or hate one more than the other so again it's it's not nice that people are going to have the choice of which they which they watch on the blu-rays Although I, sus- I suspect most people will probably prefer to watch the the HD presentations of the ones we've done recently, but if but if people are particularly prone to vidfire artifacts and don't like the the fact that the film recordings sort of have got blurry motion burnt in that we can't remove, they, they are going to have the alternative there. So try 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 and be all things to all men. <laughs> Brilliant, Peter. Thank you so much. It's been fascinating as always, and thank you once again yeah. for all the work that you do on them. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks. I'm glad you appreciate them, Kenny. Thanks for that, Peter. Um, Always fascinating and definitely look forward to hearing about what you'll be working on next, whatever it may be and whenever it may be. Kenny's bottomless address book strikes again, listeners. We're very lucky to have Kenny, aren't we? (laughs) Oh, it's... It just so happens I just know people who know people, so it's always quite nice. And uh, I'd say Peter is a smashing fella, always good company. And I could listen to him chat for hours and hours and hours about how it all works, because I just find it endlessly fascinating, but I don't know what this says about my brain. Anyway, let's move on. Right, the Sea Devils. I think um, my first exposure to the Sea Devils came through Doctor Who the music, with that soundtrack of complete bizarreness. And so when it came to finally watching it on a copy on video, it was just, what the hell is this? But I loved it. I think um, great idea to do a sequel to the Silurians, even if it's not a direct sequel, but having the return of the Silurians. But it's such a great concept. 
these creatures that have been sleeping for millions and millions of years reawakening, trying to take the Earth back. Um, I mean, it's there's not a huge link to them, but I think it is wonderfully done. I think it's a great story. Roger Delgado, I think, is having an absolute ball here. I think having had a few weeks off and been able to recharge his batteries, he's come back suitably refreshed and ready to challenge John Pertwee for uh, who's your favourite Time Lord on the telly and having a great time. And I think Katie is, again, wonderful in this. Got some really good lines, some good stuff to do. And there's some wonderful camera angles in this one as well, particularly on board the oil rig. And there's sort of that yeah. bizarre sort of, what was it called? Is that a Dutch angle, something like that? I know Dutch, it's not a Dutch. No, yeah. That's it. yeah, like Batman. Yeah. yeah, my pal Peter always goes on about them when we're doing the, the E2 podcast, where sometimes, you know, panels at Dutch tilt. Yeah, love it. I mean, for me, it's this is probably my favorite. No, I'm gonna. This is definitely my favorite story of the season. I really enjoy it. I think it's great fun. Yes, it's six episodes, but I think the pacing of it is actually quite good for a six-parter, and it keeps you yeah. hooked and interested all the way along, just to find out you know where it's going. But I think I first saw this in a pirate copy, not long before the official VHS came out. What about you, Dave? I first saw it in the Easter-ish spring of 1992, BBC Two repeat. In fact, I've got a feeling that it started the week that John Pertwee was in Paisley to open the the Behind the Sofa exhibition at the Museum and Art Gallery. So my first viewing of episode one is quite closely linked to, to meeting Johnsy for the first time. Um, I read the novel, obviously, many years beforehand. Again, it's another one, but there's lots of little shaded moments that aren't in the TV version, like the famous one about the safety catch on trench yards and not, you know, pistol not being switched on or switched off, whatever. I like it. There's, I mean, there's some brilliant stuff. The submarine, the hovercraft, all the, the, the Navy hardware on display is, is, is quite exciting. Some real nice character stuff between the Doctor and the Master. I love the bit when the Master offers to shake hands and, and Johnsy's like, you know, love that. I love all the, the business with the sandwiches. It's, it's you know, I've seen, I remember some, some friends of ours being a little bit negative on it and saying, you know, you know, aren't in it, but they might as well be. I think that's to miss the point. It's Terry and, it's Terry and Barron's, as I almost call them. <laughs> Barry and Terry's knowing the limits of their formula and thinking, right, how can we mix this up a bit? And you can tell that the Navy had a great time. You know, you can tell they had a, a, a lot of fun being involved. And the Sea Devils are such an iconic monster. I mean, they, they had appeared, by the time I became a Doctor Who fan, they'd appeared in one, precisely one story, but it seemed like they were everywhere. Their image is so strong. Um, I'm surprised that, I was about to say I'm surprised they haven't brought, brought them back again but of course there was that episode about <laughs> this time last year which maybe <laughs> the fact that I forgot that momentarily maybe says too much but the fact they did bring them back relatively unchanged I think says a lot about how successful they are yeah I like this story a lot and I think it justifies it justifies its length it never feels like it outstays its welcome Tom how do you feel about it? I first saw this in February 1972 and I, I remember the, the kind of not pre-credit sequence but I remember the, the opening sequence where there's a boat you know in distress and they're sending it a mayday and then this green scaly hand comes over the side and I remember once again just wetting myself <laughs> with, 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 with fear and excitement it was just tremendous there's so many great memorable moments right so there's the famous scene with uh, the doctor exploding the landmines uh, using a sonic screwdriver to force the, the, the sea devil back into the water. I mean, I remember that being repeated in various programs around about the time. 
uh, other various you know children's programs. I can't remember in what context, but it was it was that one scene that was repeated a couple of times. The doorless cars was just brilliant. I thought That's we have great. arrived in the future. This must yeah. be the future. Look, there's a car without a door. And of course, <laughs> when I when I saw it more recently and I, and I saw the detail on the car, I thought oh, that's a bit disappointing. That is just literally a, a car that take the door off. Two CV. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And the, the master watching uh, the the clangers is, is just genius because it was my first introduction to irony. And I thought that was brilliant. You know, I knew that he was just pretending to believe that this was an actual wildlife program or, you know, real real life. And I laughed at that and I thought that was brilliant. It was the first time I kind of saw these characters slightly making fun of themselves. And and I thought that was that. I, I must have felt very adult being able to get in on the joke on that one. Yeah. And, and of course, the Silurians is a fantastic idea. Um, and it was inevitable, I think, they were going to bring it back. Because you know you can't just you can't let an idea like that just wither and uh, on the vine. Rewatching it, of course, we've got Stuart Fell in a is it Stuart Fell in a white pantsuit climbing up yep. the side of the of uh, on a ladder pretending to be Joe Grant and and, fr- and frantically dancing as he does. So I'm not quite sure why. How can you overact when you don't have any lines? <laughs> Big uh, question though. What yeah, colour are the sea devils? Are they green or brown? I would have said, "Oh, that's a good question." I would have. I would. My instinct there was to say green, but now that I think of it, they're probably brown. You know, the sort of muddy, greeny, brown sort of blend. So, sort of, yeah, I suppose they are brown. But I suppose it's the vest makes you think that they're green. Hmm. They changed between Let's location know. and studio in my eyes, but there we go. Listen, us what colour are the sea devils? Write in and let us know. Uh, but once again, the design is fantastic. I mean, those those, you know, the string vests somehow make them look more authentic. I'm not sure why. Uh, and the guns, you know, those flat disc guns genuinely look lethal. Just brilliant. Let's chat about the next story in the set. Tom, we've already heard your thoughts on the mutants, so if you don't mind, we'll just leave it to myself and Dave. Dave, the mutants, as Tom and I said mm-hmm. earlier, is it really that forgettable, would you say that it is, or would you say that it has its moments? It's a difficult one. The, no- the novelization was one of the earliest ones that I read. Um, I've got a feeling I read, I got it from Johnson Public Library one Friday night and seen it at my granny's. I've got a feeling. Love the, the design of the mock creature. It's the story which convinces me either that Unit has a, a standby hairdresser to do the Doctor's shampoo and set, or that he has a machine <laughs> inside the TARDIS that will that will do his hair for him because John's hair is spectacular in this story and it never looks the same from episode to episode it's always styled slightly differently listeners when you're watching the mutants pay attention to John's hair and just you know take a drink every time you notice a slight stylistic difference the mutant design is phenomenal and I think at heart you know it's am I right it's Bob Baker and Dave Martin isn't it yes the Bristol boys there's elements of it that are quite similar to Claws of Axos and the Three Doctors and Sky, you know, the, the, the TV series throw in that there's a glowing, powerful super being at the heart of the heart of it. It's funny that I'm, I'm saying it's because people talk about the opening scene being very like the It's Man from Monty Python. It's a difficult one. It's probably, if I'm entirely honest, my least favourite Perry story because it's just a bit meandering. There's not enough plot for six episodes. It would be a great if someone. You know, maybe they should have done it as a Blu-ray feature. They could have got someone Hoover put together the 
trialless version of the Terror of the Vervoids. They could have cut down the mutants to four parts or produced a, a concise omnibus. There's a lot of good stuff in it, some brilliant actors in it. I remember the the discontinuity guide highlighting Jeffrey Palmer being killed off too early. I remember when I read the novelization, really liking um, Stubbs and Cotton as supporting characters. The novel is one that's, I mean, you know, is that, I think it came out in that period when Terence was starting to kind of maybe simplify things a little bit. And I think the novelization is probably better than the, the TV version. It's one that I want to like, but I really struggle with it. I remember I, I've talked often in the podcast about when I, did my whole big watch through the whole series and there was one story when I came to it I was just like is this never going to end so there on the record my least favourite Pertwee wow things that I do like about this um, like say the cast the guest cast Stubbs and Cotton are great love the design of the mutts I think they're fantastic got a great look to them but also the Marshall played by Paul Whitson Jones, who I think is superb. In fact I was actually watching him in an episode of The Avengers the other night Room Without a View in which he plays Chessman brilliant in that, really good at playing these cold sort of villains. I'd love to see how he played things in The Smugglers, if only they could find that. Um, oh, but here's a sad thing, here's a sad fact for you. Paul Whitson-Jones died in January 1974, so you're talking less than two years after this was on the telly, he passed away. Gosh, I didn't know that, that's a shame. It's an interesting story, I mean, there's all the, it's obviously one of those stories that um, deals with, you know, Brit, you know, filters Britain's colonial past, and um, was sort of built on in the, the New Adventures books, you know, when they did their sort of, when they tied together some of the different futures that we'd seen in Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, you know, this was was the, the the Earth Empire starting to retract a little bit and not quite at its 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 full phase. It's got a lot of interesting stuff, but it should have been, if it'd been I think if it'd been four parts, it'd be I'm repeating myself as usual. If it'd been four parts, I think it'd be a lot better, more better regarded. Yeah, that, that yeah. Didn't, that's quite sad. Paul Whitson Jones. Oh, it is. It is. I just, I just googled him there because I just thought what was the name of the character he played in Room Without a View? Chessman, who owned the chess themes uh, chain of hotels. The other thing about this is that even now thinking about it, I can hear the transmat sound effect from the mutants in my head. <laughs> Very I can't. <laughs> I'd have to remind myself because it's not a story that I've watched that often. I think it was quite late coming out of VHS, wasn't it? I think it was, um, yeah. I think it's. I've got a feeling my cousin might have taped it off UK Gold for me at one point in the 90s, so that, you know, I've got a feeling that's probably when I first saw it. But Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. That's... Do you have much else? Do you have much else to say about the mutants? Is there much else I to just, say? I don't think there is. I just. Nah. Just don't particularly enjoy it. <laughs> well, nah. There we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah, sum up the mutants. Yeah, it's in a sound. Of, that's something we should do in future. When we're doing reviews, sum it up in a sound. <laughs> Very quick. It'd be perfect for podcasts. Perfect for audio. <laughs> how childish. But how perfectly Kenny. sums it up. How Kenny, yes. So let's move on. We actually have time now for another guest. And we're going to have a quick chat now with Richard Bignall, who's going to tell us about the PDF content of this new Blu-ray and some fascinating discoveries he made with regards to a lost sequence at the start of the Sea Devils. Hello, Kenny, and hello to everyone on the podcast. I'm Richard Bignall, and uh, I look after the PDF archive on the current range of uh, Doctor Who Collection Blu-rays, and uh, as well as doing lots of research on them as well. I suppose the first question to ask is, how many pages are there? 
too many. <laughs> um, oh, crumbs. That's a good question. I, uh, I should have looked that one up, really, shouldn't I? It's something like about 3,500 on this one, I think, um, which now takes in the... I think we've done 13. This is our 13th release. So that takes it up to just over 45,000 pages worth of PDF content uh, over the 13 releases so far. So, yeah, what a rod from your own back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's always fascinating, sort of, the, 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 the incredible wee gems that you find. And were there any particular treasures for you personally that you found in this occasion? Well, so, something that's always interested me with Season 9 uh, and people will be able to see it in the paperwork, comes with the Sea Devils. And it's something that I've been sort of idly trying to find out whether or not they ever actually did, um, because there was this rather strange uh, scene which they were going to sh um, shoot for the very beginning of the story uh, that isn't there. So as the story begins at the start of episode one, you have uh, the attack on SS Pevensey Castle. And then the next shot is of uh, the Doctor, Joe and Robbins in the boat chucking towards the island where the master is. Now the filming schedule that they drew up, uh, which will be part of the PDF archive, actually shows that the start of that scene where you see the three of them in the boat should have actually been extended and it should have been extended i'm pretty sure to satisfy the whims of john pertwee uh because it should have begun with um joe and robbins uh chatting on the jetty or around the beach um basically saying with robbins saying look you know do you want to go to the island or not because we're running out of time and Joe's standing there going, well, you know, yes, we're, we're waiting for the Doctor who should be here. And then all of a sudden, the Doctor appears on water skis being towed by a speedboat. And that whole sequence, and, and he comes up and he, you know, comes up onto the beach and meets Joe and off they go. And then the scene continues in the boat that we see transmitted now that whole sequence is in the film schedule with all the dialogue and all the shots they were going to do and there's various hand annotated notations on there as well it also appears in the film diary that they were going to do uh that they were going to do on the day that they shut all the stuff around uh benbridge sailing club so where the jetty is and things like that that's all down there the requirement for the speedboat is there i have in the past asked both um, Michael Bryant, and indeed I did ask Katie Manning at the BFI uh, whether or not that was shot, but ne no one can seem to remember whether or not it actually was or not. Um, it's very much, as I said, pandering to the whims of John Pertwee, I think. That's very much his sort of idea. There's no indication on the material that was shot that day that they had any adverse weather conditions that might have affected it. So... Uh, unlike a little bit later on, because they were going to do some shots um, towards the end of, is it episode three or episode four, uh, where the Doctor and Joe have sailed down onto the beach and meet the sea devil with the minefield. There was going to be a whole shot of them actually abseiling down with them being doubled by 
some other people doing the abseiling down the cliff, uh, but that all got fogged out. But this um, this particular day looks to be sort of quite bright and cloudless and looks absolutely fine. And we know from the photographs that we have that there was a BBC photographer there because we've got all those ones of uh, Joe on the motorcycle with a hat, with a helmet on. They're all done the same day. Um, so, yeah, we don't actually know whether or not this was ever filmed. It would be a remarkable thing to find sometime, but uh, all the information is actually there in the paperwork, which is absolutely lovely. Um, so, so that's a, a, an interesting uh, aspect to look at. I, I think it's also interesting as well with um, uh, what actually surprised me with Day of the Daleks um, was how late they must have got around to calling the the Dalek servants Ogrons or Ogrons as Barry Letts always called them um, because there's absolutely no mention of it at all in any of the paperwork they are only ever referred to as being monsters um, even in the scripts the camera scripts uh, on the odd occasion where they're mentioned in the story they are not actually mentioned by name at all so I think it was a very very late thing in the day um, that they actually acquired a name. There's nothing actually in the paperwork itself to say when they took it on, but I, it was certainly, must have been very, very close to actually shooting. It was certainly, as I said, not in the camera scripts, but it is when they record. So I think they must have decided that perhaps just calling the monsters was a bit silly. That's amazing. I love all these things because I can so imagine John Pertwee on skis. It's uh, water skis. It's just, it's just so him, just umbra umbra, and uh, hello Joe, and yeah, brilliant. It's, it's, it's just so so him. I mean, I suppose that's one of the joys of this job, that you get to find out all these amazing things, and and it just sort of like gets the mind boggling and thinking, wow. I mean, imagine there's there's an awful lot of more day to day stuff in there as well. There is. I mean, by and large, uh, a lot of the material that's in the production files is precisely that it, it is the the day-to-day -day minutiae of actually trying to put a program on so um you know it's costings for this and booking rooms for that and meetings and so on and so forth but among the among those things you get a lot of nice little gems um but as i think i've said before kenny you know in the in in the previous interviews it's it's sometimes surprising what you don't find in the files as well um so there, there is absolutely no mention in the Sea Devils file of anything of the problems with the submarine that they had. But then perhaps there, that might not be, because um, whilst Michael Bryant tends to tell the story as if it happened whilst they were still in production, um, obviously I think they would have only known about it when it went out on transmission, which would have been... Uh, several months later, a good few months later. So by then, the production farm might have all been closed up, and um, you know, n no mention was made. So um, yeah, so so it can vary. Sometimes you'll find really interesting things. Sometimes it will be a lot more mundane. Um, but it's always a it's always a privilege to be able to go through this material, and it's really nice to be able to finally get it out to uh, into people's hands so that they can actually make use of it themselves. Um, you, you can go to the BBC written archives, um, but unless you're actually doing a particular project, you've got to pay for it. 
and you know you're only there for a certain number of hours so uh, it's nice to be able to actually put this stuff into people's hands oh it definitely is because uh, i mean you you know um from our from our own conversations and emails how much i love all this detail and things like that so i'm uh always very grateful for the work and the perseverance because i imagine that this is probably what was this what this must be several days if not weeks worth going into doing this one with three thousand three and three and a half thousand plus pages yeah i mean it's um as i've mentioned in previous interviews I, I usually spend a week at a time at the written archives uh going through files and uh, uh, acquiring all the material um but then you have to start going going through it actually processing it you've got to put all of that material into date order so that it's got some side some sort of flow to it um we do have to have uh data protection stipulations upon us so um, there are things that we have to remove out of the documents or not include at all. If there are certain documents, we can't include those at all. Um, so all of that takes additional work. Um, that all has to be gone through. That then has to go through some compliance checks to make sure that I've not missed anything, which you know, occasionally happens. Occasionally you'll, you'll miss out something or other. Uh, something sometimes it's glaringly obvious sometimes it'll be a tiny thing but um, we go through those checks just to make sure that they they pass through everything uh, yeah and then we can um, get them out onto the disc um, but yeah it's a matter of acquiring stuff and uh, as as we've said before it's not always stuff that comes from the written archives themselves sometimes we're able to pull things from other places and other collections um, that was certainly the case with season nine um uh, a couple of years ago i got in contact with um paul's paul bernard's uh wife carol um and paul directed obviously day of the daleks and the time monster for season nine um we'd already gone through and done the front frontier in space by that point on season 10. um because i had a an idea that paul still had some of his original files um because i got in contact with him many years ago and he sent me some photocopies of half a dozen pages out of the scripts all hand annotated and so on so i got in contact with carol and i said does this stuff uh, still exist by any chance and carol said well yes it should do uh, i'll i'll have a look for it and bless her she looked through everything she searched the house from top to bottom she searched through garages endless boxes she recruited her friends in to come and help and couldn't find any of it all she found out of all the doctor material was two bbc photographs that paul had, had kept in an album and then quite by chance several months ago david howe mentioned that he had all of paul's stuff Doctor Who, uh, because when they did the third Doctor Handbook for Virgin, uh, they used to do a section in there called From Script to Screen, uh, and it was it was like almost a, a written commentary, if you like, uh, going through the story. And Paul had been part of that, and they'd done Day of the Daleks, and as part and parcel of that, Paul had said to David, "You know, you're welcome to keep all all the stuff I've got. I don't really need it anymore." And David said to me, well, look, I've got it all. You're, you're more than welcome to, 
you know, borrow it all and scan it. So we've been able to go through all that material. Um, and we've got some really nice stuff for Day of the Daleks. So it includes, um, and Time Monster as well, it includes um, a number of Paul's uh, hand annotated scripts. So rehearsal scripts to camera scripts that he'd written over. It's got his, you know, all his notes on it. Um, Paul had kept some of his studio floor plans for Day of the Daleks, which the BBC don't have. Uh, uh, so we had those, some of his little sketches and drawings for for things as well. So, you know, it's a, it's a lovely thing when you've got the generosity of collectors who are willing to help add to the total sum of all this material. Um, and it was especially helpful with the scripts because the BBC scripts are not in a good state for Day of the Daleks. Um, what they have, their, their copies of paper scripts are actually photocopies of the scripts, but the original scripts were quite poor. And on these particular occasions, when someone had requested copies of the scripts, the old BBC script department looked at them and went, oh, they don't look very good. They're not very legible. So they went over the top of everything in Biro. So you, you've got all these scripts and they're sort of this Biro filling in on all of them. Uh, unfortunately, David had Paul's original scripts for, I think it's the first three episodes, didn't have one for episode four. So we've been able to go back to original um, unmolested scripts for those, which is really lovely. Um, we still got the same problem, funny enough, uh, which will come up at some point in the future with the invasion of time, because the invasion of time suffers from exactly the same problem. Those scripts are, uh, are all photocopies that have been gone over in Biro. So um you know we, we need to see whether or not we can find some decent copies of those scripts somewhere at some point in the future when we get around to doing season 15. um but it's one of those things and until you sort of start going through material and uh you're never sort of quite sure what surprises are gonna are gonna kick up but you know you have to accept that some stuff is as it is and uh, you just make the best of it yeah. So we've mentioned quite a, a few things from Sea Devils and Day. So can you tell us anything that we can get expect from Curse, the Mutants, and indeed any teases, any tidbits for Time Monster? Well, we've been able to include for the for the Time Monster some of the documentation with regards to uh, Greg Powell's accident. There's a, a lovely new making of for the Time Monster uh, that's been done by Steve Broster and uh, which Toby uh, Hayden presents. And uh, we actually got a chance to speak to Greg Powell about it, who's a, who's a lovely guy. And he gave his account of that particular accident. But it's very interesting to see the original um, reports because this went through quite a, a lengthy process because of the type of accident that it was. He was out of work for several months and uh, the horse wasn't too clever either. Um, because it went head on into a vehicle so you've got all that information in there which is is quite interesting to go through but yeah there's there's lots of really interesting little bits and pieces in there uh, and it, it just really helps to i think inform the entire experience of watching those particular episodes because uh, you actually get to see what goes into actually putting these things together and you understand the mechanics of uh, of how things are actually put together. 
and it's a it's a terrific box set. It actually it looks absolutely gorgeous. Peter's done a, such a great job on uh, cleaning everything up and making everything look look lovely. I think probably out of all the episodes, the worst one you're going to find is probably episode two of the Curse of Peladon, because well, these are obviously done now by taking the black and white film recordings cleaning those, vid-firing those, and laying the colour over the top. The black and white film recording for episode two of The Curse of Peladon actually has a, a light strip going down the left-hand side of the frame. And while some attempt could have been made to actually cover that over, it was deemed that it was probably going to be more distracting than it would be just to, just to leave it alone. But yeah, they, these episodes look absolutely lovely, and it's uh, it, it's a cracking set, really is. It was great fun going through it. Yeah, I'm not at all jealous because obviously, as we speak, it's just before the release, so I'm super jealous that uh, you've been able to see all these things. But come Monday, hopefully, um, my delivery using a Christmas voucher from a company that I'm not going to name because uh, I would normally rather go to my local store and support my local shop. But uh, yeah, I'm hugely looking forward to it, and I think. Um, you know, once again, thank you to yourself and the rest of the team for all the work that you do in these because it is very much appreciated. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. And, you know, we do it all because we're fans of the programme. You know, you, you could do the absolute minimum and probably if we did what we were actually paid for, that's pretty much what you'd get. I, I think the whole team really does go above and beyond on these because these are the sets that we want to have you know these are the things that that we want to possess and for that reason you want to do do the very best you can because you realize that probably this is the last last shot on on physical media that they're going to get uh, as far as we're aware so you know you want to try and do your very best and make them make them the, the lovely things that they are well, thanks again for your time, Richard. It's been a real joy, and hopefully we'll speak again before the year is out, if there's another set on the way. I'm not asking you for any comment whatsoever. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Kevin. Dave, what do you think of that lost opening? <laughs> oh, I think it would have been the most Johnsy thing ever. That's a real shame. Hello, Joe. That would have been hilarious. Um, <laughs> you know, you can imagine him shaking in the water and nipping off to the to the unit barbers for a quick, a quick blow-dry. Um... No, that would have been, oh, that's a shame. That would have been really, really a lot of fun. And I'm sure John would have loved doing it. That's a pity. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, it may have been filmed. We just don't know. Richard can't find out. Oh, gosh. Because Can you home. imagine? Maybe when they, they release season nine as a beam directly into your brain, consumable pill, they'll have found it, but then someone yeah. will restore it at the start of Terror of the Zygons. That would be nice. <laughs> that would be lovely. So, Tom, could you give us your thoughts on the season finale, The Time Monster? Is it a retread of the demons, which I always felt it was trying to be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, at the time, I remember being very spooked by it. I remember being spooked by the space budget, which we all make fun of now. But to an eight-year-old watching that, it, it was quite disconcerting because I hadn't really seen anything like that before. I wasn't quite sure what it was. And that kind of frightened me a little bit. Um, and I remember enjoying it quite a lot at the time. But of course, back in when I was eight years old, I had no concept of how many episodes there were or whether they were stretching out the story. It doesn't it doesn't stand up well to to rewatch these days, to be fair. I mean, that silly uh, 
structure that the doctor builds to you know that he's you know that interferes with time whatever the hell it's called and he made it made it out of a bit of wire and an eggshell or something i mean that that's that's not convincing but um you know, it, it was one of those stories, I think, where they were pushing the boundaries and trying new ideas and bringing Atlantis into it. Um, and I thought that they should get 10 out of 10 for effort, at least. That's fair comment. That's fair. Dave, would you agree with what Tom says about the Time Monster? I first sort of experienced the Time Monster when I read the novelization when I was in high school. And I was... I was still at high school when they still taught classical studies, so it was quite. And I was, and I loved classical studies. It was like one of my favourite subjects at school because I was when I was a little boy. I was really into Greek mythology, you know, sparked by things like Jason the Argonauts and Clash of the Titans and stuff like that. So when you when you got to school and you actually got taught this stuff, it was brilliant. Um, holy moly! If you've seen the new Shazam film, listeners, and you really should because it's brilliant. Um, moly is is um, is the name of the herb that Cersei gives to Odysseus and his mates to, to make them compliant. Why am I telling you that? Because it's no, it has no relevance to the Time Monster, but it floated in my head. I like the Time Monster. Again, it's another one that would be a fantastic four-parter. Um, you really get the sense that they're kind of running on fumes a little bit by the end of the series. Um, and obviously, like the Brigadier running on the spot for a couple of episodes or whatever. Um, I remember, uh, wait, I think that was another one that I must have got my cousin to tape off UK Gold for me. In fact, you know, I have a memory of my cousin failing to tape a story for me despite me asking, and I wonder if that was the one. I remember my mum getting a bit huffy on my behalf. I wonder if it was that story. It could have been, because it, by that point, mid-90s, it, it would have been one of the few that I hadn't seen. Katie looks brilliant in it. Roger's in it. Um, Ingrid Pitt, for crying out loud. I like that TARDIS interior. I wish they'd had the, the nerve to stick with it for a bit longer. There's a lot of fun in it. Um, Sergeant Benson gets some interesting stuff to do. And, and the thing I always talk about, I don't think anyone else ever picks up on, Captain Yates gets injured in that explosion when the, the doodle bug comes down, right? Which explains why he's not there in the Three Doctors and explains why he's on different duties in the Green Death, which obviously leads into his whole arc with Operation Golden Age and in the Open Meditation Centre in Season 11. So the Mike Yates character development begins in the Time Monster. Yeah. Where do you stand on it, Ken? Well, I just to me, it's a poor man's version of the demons with an extra episode lumped in, because you've got the sort of the mythological creature, you've got um, just that classical setting, you've got um, just all that. It, it just to me, it just feels like it's trying to do the same thing again. Here's the master conjuring up an ancient creature, and it just for me, it just doesn't quite work. I mean, yes, it's got some great bits. And I'm not just talking Ingrid Pitt. Um, it's just, I don't know, it just doesn't, it's, it's not, it's, it should work. When you look at it, it's got all the elements that made the demons such a success. But to me, it just, it's not got the interest factor of it. It just, it just, it feels awful slow in places. And as you say, I think, with the tidy up the pacing and you would get a far better story yeah. out of it and I think I'd jump more again as I say it's one that I've I've just not watched that often it's just mm. it just doesn't grab me I mean I, hold, I love the whole concept of the chronovores creatures that eat time brilliant but just so poorly utilised in the end <laughs> chronovores fantastic what they are right they're ancient beings from early in the universe what they do is they eat time can you imagine eating time it's bad enough having to finish your dinner 
No, it's, I'd never thought, I'd never considered the parallels with the demons um, before. That's that's interesting. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting one. It's it's very much the end of the season um, unit family party story in a similar way to the demons and the green death. I suppose it has that slight looseness of some of the modern season finales when you can tell that that Russell T Davis or Stephen Moffat or Mr Chibnall have kind of exhausted themselves and they haven't quite got everything as tight as maybe as it should be but there's lots of funny bits and some good character moments and that's enough to, to tide it for me it's by no means my least favourite Jonesy story um, I it probably isn't even bottom five because I think it balances there's some I really like the stuff with between Benton and the Master because anything that just you know, fills out Sergeant Benton as a character, makes him a bit more interesting, justifies his his, his presence in, in the three doctors a little bit more. Um when you when you watch the context of you know the story being sequence. I think it's um I think it's fair to say it's not as good as it could be, but it's again I'm I, and I'm repeating myself once again and I apologize. Four parts would be so much better. Just imagine though, if they'd made made it that one of the mutants even just like, you know, five parts, they might have been slightly better. I don't know. But it's um it's all about Barry and Terence and, and the way they went about things at the time, I suppose. Sum it up in a sound, Dave. Um Okay, um, that's the, that's fine, that'll do. That's something. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> and my answer to it is just oh although bizarrely its production code is zero zero zero, so technically you could sum it up as being ooh. But mm-hmm. um, I'll just go with oh. Interesting. So, Dave. Which one will you be watching first? Well, we're recording this on the evening of the day the box set being released, and my copy ordered from my former employers arrived this morning. Whilst I was out getting my new tattoo, um, and I've already made a start. I watched the Behind the Sofas on Day of the Daleks and the Curse of Peladon. And I'm, what story would I watch first? I'm not sure. I might, to be honest, I might end up sticking a Time Monster on because it's probably it's probably the one out of the ones that I would want to watch soonish it's probably the one I'm least familiar with so you know it might be that one I think to be honest I, I'm, I'm very intrigued as usual to see what the restoration work has been is like because obviously certain elements of the sea devils have had to be recovered and certain elements of, of the time monster and the mutants have had to be and, and Belladon have had to be recovered so I kind of want to kind of see what they look like so um tossing a coin I think it probably would just be the time monster just out of just randomness to be honest what about yourself I think I'll go for Day of the Daleks because Again, I'm watching. I haven't watched it in years, so I look forward to giving it uh, coming to it fresh. I mean, I must. I could probably haven't watched it since the DVD came out. So well, yeah, I look of forward to, um, to that. Yeah, the, the famous, the famous special edition with more Daleks and with Mr. Briggs's voices. Yeah, mm, interesting. I'm glad that they put both on the disc. Of, you know, apparently there's also apparently an edited um, one-hour-long omnibus version of David Daleks that was that was apparently shown back in the day. So that's on the disc as well. So that's something I'm going to watch. That may be something I watch first, actually. Interesting. But that's what I love, the time and effort taken to put these things on here and bring Absolutely. it on. We're very lucky. Yeah. So, Tom, what's your favourite story overall? Which one will you be watching first? Will you be doing it in chronological order or picking out a favourite? I'll, well, both. I'll be watching my favourite because it's the first in this box set in the Day of the Daleks, which I will never tire of because I love it so much. So, gents, I'm afraid that's time up. So, Tom, do you want to say goodbye? It's been lovely chatting to you guys, and uh, we will no doubt 
speak again, either online or offline, uh, either when the next box set is released or when we just want a chat um, and uh, an egg roll at Langside Cafe. Sounds good to me. <laughs> so, bring it on. Dave, before you say goodbye, though, do you have a question for me? Yes, I'll say goodbye. And as, as usual, I'll encourage listeners to check out my other podcast, the, the Earth 2 podcast, um, where Peter and I are, are towards the end of 1972, I think, at the moment. Um, I've also started appearing occasionally on another comics podcast, um, a subsection of a podcast called Stop, Let's Team Up, and I'm appearing as an occasional guest on a segment on that called Opal City Confidential, dealing with the history of the, the DC superhero Starman. So, plugs aside, um, Kenny wants me to ask him what song we're going to play. And I'm hoping he's going to choose the song Cursed from his 2002 album, which the name of which utterly escapes me at the moment. In fact, it might even be 2003. Um, anyway, Kenny, what are we going to play it with tonight? Well, Dave, it's from 1998, and it's from the album On A Day Like Today. And because I'm actually delighted to have got this on Dave release, I'm on Cloud9. So we're actually going to hear from Brian Adams at Cloud. Can I, can I very quickly tell listeners that I, we, we worked for Brian Adams last year when he was playing at Floors Castle down in the borders down near Kelso. And my friend and colleague Jude and I climbed up to the top of the, the front of the house tower and sat watching the show from there. And if you go to Brian Adams' official Instagram post from that gig, where he has his camera and swallows it around, if you screenshot it, you will see Jude and I's legs hanging off the top of the, the front of house tower. So there we go. But um, yes, he did it. Who was it produced by? He did another song for the same folk. I can't oh, remember. I can't remember. Right, it doesn't matter. Right, so yeah. I just like the song. That's an I'll just write so to I'll bring it all back by saying, that's an excellent choice, Kenny. Well done. Bye-bye, folks, and we'll be back next week with something else. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.